0: My guest today is Gary Benger. Gary F. Benger is a writer, philosopher, and technologist. After a career in Silicon Valley, Gary pursued multiple projects animated by his intellectual passions, studying astrophysics and philosophy. He is the author of the award-winning science fiction novel, Unfettered Journey. Before turning to writing speculative fiction, Gary worked in a variety of Silicon Valley tech companies. He was eBay's chief financial officer and led the company's initial and secondary public offerings. Gary has an MBA from Harvard Business School and an MA in philosophy from San Francisco State University. Among his broad and extensive areas of engagement, he serves on the board of trustees of the Santa Fe Institute, which endeavors to bring researchers together to understand and unify the underlying shared patterns in complex physical, biological, social, cultural, technological, and even possible astrobiological worlds. And he serves on the board of trustees for the Exploratorium, an institution dedicated to science education for children, where he serves on the Committee on Directors and on the Finance Committee. He is also chairman of the Benjier Foundation, an organization committed to increasing American educational capital, providing mentoring, scholarships, and opportunities to students and teachers. Set in a richly imagined near future, Gary's novel, Unfettered Journey, is a cross-genre novel combining thrilling action, adventure, and a love story. It traces an epic journey from inside the human mind to the vastness of space, from AIs battling in the desert to the peace of a mountain refuge. It asks social, spiritual, and philosophical questions that reach into some of the major topics of the show. How do human values interact with technological products? How does ethics, that is to say what we should do or what we ought to do, change and respond to our new technological world? And how can science fiction itself transform our vision of who we want to become? Here's my conversation with Gary. Hi, Gary. Hi, Deb. So, Gary, this is such a treat for me to talk to. you. I love the novel, and I'm really excited to talk to you about some of the things that undergird it. I wanted to spend the bulk of our time today talking about the novel itself, Unfettered Journey, which I think I'd wanna talk about within the context of science fiction broadly, and then maybe some other uh, literary dimensions of the novel. But first, I'd love to ask you some questions about how you got to writing science fiction in the first place. I think before Unfettered Journey came out, many people would have associated you with the tech industry and not with fiction, but as eBay's chief financial officer who notably led the company's initial and secondary public offerings. So why science fiction? Why writing at all?
1: <laughs> well, I think that uh, all of us have many lives that are possible, and uh, geez, I hate to be uh, fixated on just one. So you're right, I had a, a roughly 30-year career in tech. And I had the great fortune of being in all kinds of tech, from chip design to semiconductors to computer peripherals and uh, high-tech windmills and then the internet. So I did all that. And, uh, and then I went back to school, actually. I went back and backfilled a, a degree in astrophysics. And then I got interested in some philosophy. And I backfilled a philosophy undergraduate. I got a master's in philosophy uh, focused on theory of mind. And uh, and then I got very interested in questions about the mind. You know, what is it really? What What is that I that's at the center of you and me? And that led to this whole project with the, the book.
0: I want to ask you a little bit more about your background in philosophy because it's so interesting to me that you made the decision to go back and explore that. Can you say a little bit about what led you to that decision to go and not only study but formally enroll in a graduate a program in philosophy? <laughs>
1: well, well um, you know, I was very interested in mathematics back in high school and in, in college and, and in philosophy. I had some good friends who were in philosophy uh, as a major, but I went a different direction and um, it always interested me to to really understand that whole field uh, because I think that the, these are the big questions. You know, why are we here? <laughs> and do we have free will? And those have been just bugging me for 30 years, actually. And so I had this uh, good fortune to have the, the flexibility to be able to do that, to explore those kind of topics. And that's kind of why I did it. As I was working on my master's thesis, I found some problems that I found particularly frustrating and intriguing, and I, I, I believe I have some interesting uh, thoughts on that. So I wrote a, several papers that are actually the appendices to *Unfettered Journey*. Uh, they're, they're they're for a very narrow audience of uh, philosophers in uh, ontology. And then I wrote Unfettered Journey as more of an accessible novel to to introduce those to a bigger uh, and broader audience.
0: I want to ask you about the philosophies themselves in a second, but you mentioned, uh, I think, some key terms that helped me understand why you decided to write a novel rather than go straight after the philosophies themselves. You mentioned accessibility as one of the reasons that you felt that it might be helpful to write a novel or productive to write a novel, fruitful to write a novel rather than to hand over those straight philosophical papers. But can you share a little bit about why the novel forms specifically? What was it that the novel allowed you to do or see or understand about the philosophies or convey about the philosophies that the papers themselves might not have been able to do?
1: Many philosophers have written uh, novels in addition to their to their deeper works. Um, and I'm thinking about Sartre. Uh, very few people read his uh, detailed philosophical books, but you know, nausea is out there as a book that folks read. By the way, I I sort of make fun of nausea in a few pages in my book because I think that a couple of key ideas behind the uh, importance of properties are completely wrong. <laughs> so so I'm uh, so there's those sort of aspersions to some of the other philosophers and philosophies that I uh, tend to challenge in my my detailed philosophical work. But I think uh, you know, these are ideas that uh, are more important than to leave just to a small number of academics to think about, because they're central to humankind. I mean, we spend so much of our time working and getting stuff and living our lives, and so few people think about why we do that. You know, Socrates says said that the unexamined life is not worth living, and um, as one of my characters in the book says, well, uh, they disagree with Socrates, but the unexamined life is less interesting. And so we should ask those questions. And I think that with our technology, we actually as human beings have more time to think about these kind of questions. And so I think that it's, it's a waste if we spend all our time going from one fad to another, to spending all our time on social media and finding one more uh, distraction in life. We should actually sit back and actually use the time that we have now um, to do some uh, retrospection.
0: Yeah, I'm really interested in uh, how you came about in deciding the specific philosophies that are really under pressure uh, or foregrounded in the novel, one of which is free will versus specifically determinism. This is a really interesting coincidence because this conversation comes right on the back of uh, another conversation I had for the show about free will versus determinism that tried to engage why so many people in the tech industry are compelled by or drawn to determinism. Notably, Sam Harris, who's very popular among that crowd, has recently come out with uh, his argument in favor of determinism and his argument against free will, that comes out of a kind of quasi pseudoscientific reading of scientific principles that undergird the physicality of the universe and the kind of enclosed nature of that physicality such that each physical property can be caused by or responsive to others, in a sense, allowing us to pre-forecast or understand deterministically how things end up. And his argument, and I'm summarizing roughly here, is essentially that if we understand the nature of the physical world to be enclosed, and if we understand that the nature of particles themselves to be inherently predictive and predetermined because of our ability to predict them, there can be no such thing as free will because, of course, human beings and even our thoughts can be reduced to particles that obey these similar laws. Your book, I think, is a direct kind of response to those arguments. So I guess my question here is why you know as a as a participant in the tech industry you think that these arguments are so compelling and seductive. For people in tech, and why you felt the need to engage specifically with the philosophy of free will, in a sense, responsive to characters who, in your novel, are pretty deterministic.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, I wouldn't say they're deterministic, but they live in the real world. That is a world that is a complex adaptive system. But let me step back to that argument first. Most people think our common experience is that we have free will everyone goes around as if we have free will. Why is that? Well, that's the way the world appears to most of us. But secondly, the way science and physics has proceeded, there is this general idea that somehow science has shown that the world is deterministic. That is a result of a reductionist move in science, trying to break it down to the smallest uh, particles and understand it from a physics point of view. And that's one read of what physics and science tells us. That view that's a reductionist view is the one that's talked about by um, our scientists and the ones that you mentioned and others. Um, Dan Dennett, as an example of someone in the philosophy field who takes the science such as he gets it and tries to explain how little free will we have. A compatibilist view of Free will in uh, Dennis' case, I think I don't think that's a free will that we <laughs> would find <laughs> worth having quite honestly, and more importantly, I don't think that this read of a reductionist way of looking at science gives us the right answer, okay. I think that we're missing something very profound in the way the world, the universe works. And so that was one of the main ideas that came out of my study. Uh, and, and let me let me uh, digress this, give you a few examples where the the science leaves us, uh, all scientists shaking their head, physicists. There is dual wave particle experiment. No one can really describe how that works. There's a non-locality that uh, comes about from Bell's theorem. And over the last 20 years, actually, Test after test after test has been made, and they confirm that non-locality is real. And what that means is our common idea that particles exist in a particular place in space and time is wrong. These are just a couple examples of where we're missing something really, really profound about how nature works. So there's that. Um, In the field of philosophy, there's a number of folks who think that philosophy has some of the fundamentals wrong. As an example, Ladyman and French came out with a book now about um, about 10 years ago called Everything Must Go. And it's about ontology. And it essentially says that the common ideas in philosophy are completely wrong, that they are not in congruence with the latest physics and that philosophy as a field has to throw those ideas on ontology out the window. That is ontology, what there is, what are the fundamental elements of reality, okay? So so where do I come out as I think through those, those uh, problems? I think that this common idea among the scientifically educated that of course, a reductionist way of looking at the world is the right way, and that as part of that uh, determinism is true, I think those are just completely not only wrong, but absurd. So, and, and let me give one example, and I use this in one of my papers, and this is would be a dated example. A young woman is listening to the radio a long time ago, and she hears John F. Kennedy say, we will go to the moon, and she's She's thrilled by that conversation. And that conversation, that call to action, causes her to decide to go into science and to eventually work at NASA. And she ends her career as a very important person in the uh, space program. Okay. So now think about that example. This young woman, her whole action is, on one level, uh, dictated by. Particles, uh, if you believe in particles in that model, and uh, you know electrons going through radios going through the air, causing a message to appear in our uh, auditory system and her head, and then somehow that causes this whole other chain of things to happen, uh, but that's that reductionist answer misses the whole point of how we create meaning because it's the meaning itself that actually is the important thing that causes that whole chain of action and we know that and we can think of so many examples in our whole life that meaning itself is not a particle based reductionist view of the world but it's something at a much higher level okay so so to imagine that this reductionist view is the complete and only one i think is absurd (laughs) so so now how does one explain that Aggregation of from a particle level of description to a higher level of description. How does one explain that being the cause of what happens in our world? Okay. And so that whole line of thinking is uh, behind um, my hypothesis that the world is organized in terms of what cause is at a higher level. And that then allows us to actually have a type of free will a free will that is actually worth having, that is truly free. That's my big idea.
0: Well, in your story, what's very apparent is that the meaning of the story is not in the sequence of events, it's in the emphasis on the fact that hearing this particular story caused this person to go and become a scientist that's the where the meaning is it's not the events themselves it's the story that we can tell about them and the meaning that we derive from them of course the other side of the coin i think is the idea that there can be no ethics essentially without any free will this is something that i think your novel directly engages with if We think about what ethics fundamentally is. Ethics is a choice. It's what we decide to do. It's what we ought to do or what we should do. If we are programmed as some of your characters in the novel without giving too much away are, then there is no ethics. They're not choosing what they should do or what they ought to do. They're only doing the thing that they're programmed to do. So we really can't speak in any meaningful ethical language about, about anything, nor can we assign things like, justice or the attributions of accountability without first acknowledging that some folks are free to choose to do something and they have chosen to do something else. Exactly. And so I think your, your novel exactly. uh, quite thoughtfully plays out the severe outcomes of what it looks like to hold somebody accountable, for example, for an action that they could not have chosen to do, as is the case with your presumed villain. Or with the kind of righteousness of somebody who is, in a sense, uh, brought into a over-determined society. And again, I'm trying not to give away spoilers, but the kind of construct of the novel has to do with people born or assigned into certain stations in life. Um, and there really is no ethics if they could not choose to live, in a sense, or break out of those kinds of circumscribed kind of stations. Now, I'm now thinking, drawing from your novel, about one of the ways in which determinism becomes compelling to both scientists and to non-scientists, because we're living in a world right now that we may not have, you know, numerically ordered stations in life into which we are born, but certainly many have made the case that in our current environment, inequality is as such and the nature of our kind of stratified way of living, especially in the United States, is as such that our births overdetermine what we are able to do. And in a sense, in that sense, we are bounded characters, both ethically, rationally, and practically. And so, I'm wondering now um, about the dimension of the novel that has to do with where people are born and. What they choose to do with that kind of ossified station in life, um, and how that relates to the concepts of free will that we're talking about.
1: Okay, so so you mentioned it reminds me. I'll describe it as three different cop outs that people might have. The first is to say that there's determinism, so we're, one is not responsible for one's own actions, and and that's a cop out because as I said, if if one believes and and embraces one's free will, then then you're responsible. So take responsibility. The second is that if you think about all of uh time in the universe, we have a very thin layer of time that we are participating in. What is it? 13.8 billion years is the current age of the universe and um you know, we're only a fraction of the way done with that. So our tiny bit of time is 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 incredibly short in that that's all we get. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not a believer in reincarnation. <laughs> we only go around once. So uh, you better use it very, very wisely. And then third, by the way, one one of the things that my book has won best spiritual fiction in a couple categories, but I'll just say that if one thinks then that we are responsible, it is our responsibility to figure out what is moral and not moral. Okay. And that's another responsibility that we have, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist. I believe in a closed physical universe. <laughs> I'm, I don't think that there are any laws that are handed down from any place else if 200 years ago, folks thought that slavery was a good idea, and now we don't. Um, that's an evolution in our human understanding to the better, and that we can realize what a horrible thing that um, that institution was. Humankind are, are making those kind of moral judgments all the time and changing them. You know, and that, that says something about the arc of our own development as a species, which I... Th- optimistically believe is is generally going in the right direction But again that's another responsibility of us so those are three ways that uh, we can cop out and uh, I, I'm a believer in holding ourselves responsible and accountable At a higher level.
0: I'm trying, if you can tell from my questions, not to give away too many spoilers in them. But I wonder if you could share a quick summary of the plot before we go any further, just so we can uh, allow our listeners some traction on the novel itself. And I think that that summary might help listeners understand what we're talking about in in the absence of those listening to the show, having read the book first. Can you give us a brief summary of Unreaded Journey?
1: Yeah, so Unfettered Journey, by the way, Unfettered Journey is now out in eight languages, and uh, it's actually just uh, now won 10 different book awards. So I'm very pleased with how well it's been doing.
0: Congratulations. The
1: the, the book is a cross-genre adventure and love story, and as you can tell, it has a fairly heavy philosophical uh, underpinning in terms of ideas, and it's also a social justice book. Uh, So the book takes place in the year 2161, roughly 140 years in the future, and it begins with Joe Denkinsmith, who is an AI scientist. His uh, job is to create true robot and AI consciousness, and he's stuck. And so as a result of that, he decides to go off to a small college uh, where he can go deep in trying to understand this and other issues that um, that he's been mulling on. And as he does that, he meets a campaigner for social justice. And the story proceeds from there, let me say that. And among other things, it's a hard science novel about the future. As I said, I'm a scientist. I I, I think that it it's useful in science to focus on what potentially our real problems are. And uh, so I cover a number of topics about the future that I think are uh, more highly likely. And so that's the context for the book.
0: I wanted to latch on to one of the first things you said, which is that you set the book in 2160, which is the future, but it's not a distant future. And when we, when we first spoke, uh, we were chatting a while back about the possibility of doing an episode of the show together. You shared a little bit about the setting of the novel. And it was really important for you to stress that it was set in the not- too distant future, a realistic future, you called it. So why the near future? Why would you want to set the novel with that kind of temporal tangibility in a world that's kind of contiguous in a sense with our own?
1: Well, you're, you're, the, I was just reading another book called Empires of Light by Jill Jones, and she talks about a period in 1882, which is actually almost exactly the same amount of time in the past. And this is when the United States was being electrified. And we first had electricity lighting houses. And if we think back to that, that sounds like a long time ago in some ways, but it also sounds something you know, that we can we can understand. It's not that different from the way we live today in some way. I mean, people were still humans. <laughs> and that's what that's one of the things about my book *Unfettered Journey*. It's in the future, and yet it's a future that is accessible. It feels, I think, in the uh, in the um, uh, *She* single magazine, the reviewer said it's eerily authentic. So, so one of the reasons I did that is that I think that so much of science fiction tends to imagine crazy futures, apocalyptic futures, futures that are clearly unscientific and just aren't going to happen. I think part of that is because it's so darn hard to think about the future. You know, if you wrote a book in 2005, it probably didn't contemplate the iPhone that was invented in 2007. And so, so much of the book would be wrong. So it's very easy to get the future wrong which is also why I made it at least 140 years in the future, because I think we can see the broader trends better than we can see the near future, really, really near future, the next, uh, you know, 20, 30 years. But also, I think that many science fiction writers maybe have given up in the sense that unless you have a good uh, experience with technology, then you won't know enough about the broad set of technologies and you'll get lots of things wrong. And so um, some science fiction writers tend to give up and they, you know, you have faster than light spaceships. Okay. Which as far as all of our science tells us is not going to happen. E equals MC squared is well understood to be exactly correct. So you're not going to have that. And then the other thing that science fiction tends to do is to take some trend and take it to the absurd limit. So we have so many apocalyptic books; uh, it's a whole genre, a subgenre. I think we, as humans, will do a better job of muddling through <laughs> to figure out how to solve some of our problems. We're, we've been pretty good at that, um, not to say they won't be difficult. And so, my my objective with the setting is to put the book into a setting where it points out what I think are the highly likely problems that we, as a species, really will have to deal with, and then. Maybe if we as a species focus on those problems, we can actually we can actually fix them.
0: I wanted to ask about your main character, uh, Joe Denkinsmith. You mentioned genre, and one of the really uh, neat little dimensions of the novel for me as an academic was that a lot of it takes place on an academic campus. Joe Denkinsmith starts out on the sabbatical on that academic. Campus And much of the first half of the book takes place in the university setting. So as a professor myself, as I said, I'm always kind of tickled by novels that set themselves up to engage with the academy in a genre, which is now called the academic novel. And characters in these novels amaze me because they are almost always more attractive than actual professors on actual campuses. They have so much more free time. They don't have to do service. They don't spend as much time as we real professors do filling out forms. They have far fewer faculty meetings, almost no service duties, and endless time to think and research. Wish I could live in the academic novel. So I'm really (laughs) envious of your characters. Also, they seem like uh, in fictions uh, to have much more of a life than most of us in non-fictional academies do. I guess I'm asking kind of about the relationship between the university and the real world in a sense, and what Joe's able to do there that he might not be able to do elsewhere. Universities sometimes have the bad reputation of being merely academic. And that word academic is usually used as a pejorative to mean uh, irrelevant or to indicate something that is only true in the realm of ideas and not in the real world. So what is it that setting the novel in in a university setting allows Joe to do or allows the novel to explore philosophically?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, regarding idealist versus realist, as I think Joe says, I'm a scientific realist, but a social idealist. (laughs) Okay. And I guess I am too. Regarding the the setting, this book does have uh, a number of, I think, important and deep philosophical ideas. And so it actually moves the plot along to have you know, a, a, an empirical philosopher, for example, as one of the characters to allow me to push these ideas out into the book in a more natural way. And I realize that for you and I may find this very interesting, but most people don't find the the, the academic setting quite as 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 uh, interesting. And I didn't want to make the book boring, <laughs> so so the the plot I think moves fairly well fast. And my and I didn't want to slow down the book by trying to be endlessly full of narrative uh, literary descriptions. And uh, so I do use that reader's attention to some degree those coins by putting some of these ideas out but Then I make that up by trying to keep the plot moving along. So that was a uh, writerly choice to, to keep it interesting. With regard to the, how, how not busy they are. uh, Remember this is 140 years in the future and one of the key um, economic points, and I can go into this a little bit more, but folks can only work 12 hours. Legally, one can only work 12 hours per week. That's three days of four hours each because there aren't enough jobs. And let me say a little bit more about that. But because of that, um, there's plenty of time, as one of my characters, Gabe, says, to do um, academic uh, work. Each uh, professor typically has two PhDs because the cross-pollination between the two fields has a higher likelihood of creating more true knowledge. And everyone lives a lot longer, 140 years from now, I think I say early on. Joe says, geez, I'm 31 years old and I've lived uh, a quarter of my life and what have I accomplished so far? So a quick thing on those two points, um, bioscience and AI and robotics. With regard to my hard science view and and based on all my experience in, in Silicon Valley for the last 30 years, I believe that this next century will show humankind driven by two major sets of technologies. The first is bioscience, and the second is AI and robotics. And I think the first will cause us to cure cure lots of diseases. I suspect in 140 years, we'll be well along to curing cancer, for example. I think we'll live a lot longer. Uh, I don't think that we'll live forever. <laughs> we won't have figured that out. It's a very hard problem. But I don't think we'll notice it very much. <laughs> in the same way that, you know, um, before antibiotics, a century ago, people lived shorter lives and you know accidental death through an infection, etc., could take you away very quickly and early. you know our lifespan will be longer and but we won 't notice it because because that will be normal so that 's bioscience, big changes, but I think the biggest change that we 'll notice in society will be AI and robotics, and the reason for that is we can imagine how this will move and it's just an engineering problem in some sense, you know. You've probably seen the Boston Dynamic robots that can dance. This all looks like it's gonna to happen tomorrow, um, but I think it's gonna take a long time. It's gonna take, you know, maybe a century to get all the bugs worked out, you know, to get, get all the infrastructure in place, to get the legal systems in, in, in place. But I think that eventually robots will make robots, right? And as soon as robots make robots, robots make the factories that build the robots, then you Deb will have, you know, 20 robots working for you. (laughs) And so there really will be a lot more stuff in the economy and you won't have as much to do. In fact, the question is, um, you know, what will people do? What jobs will we have? And um, there won't be as many jobs. And so I think, I think this is highly likely actually and I think this will be the most dramatic change in humankind in all of our history since the, in the last 10,000 years because for the first time humankind will be freed from the drudgery of all the basics of life so so that will happen actually in in 140 years so The other reason I picked 140 years is that I don't think it will happen in 20 or 50, but I think that something on the order of 140 years, it will happen. And then we're going to have a big problem in spades, which is what do we do and how do we find meaning in our lives?
0: I think you're more optimistic than I am. I certainly agree with you that I think that we are going to have a dilemma about the lack of jobs available for everybody. But I can tell you that with the rise of automation, you know, unlike Joe, I certainly have less of the kind of menial tasks of collecting papers, for example, to do as a university professor. But with the permutation of technological systems that have ostensibly aimed to automate a lot of work, I've ended up with more tasks. So if you look at the job of a professor, 300 years or something before Joe uh, in 2160 was working in the academy, or even 10 years ago when somebody like me was starting work in the academy, what you had to do was essentially copy the syllabus at the beginning of the quarter, grade some papers, and then at the end, collect the papers and hand them back and give out some grades. Meanwhile, you get to give some lectures as a sage on a stage, and now the job is monitoring Electronic systems, building a website, monitoring grades, filling out forms, working with automated systems that I now have to learn and interact with because the university has, as you pointed out, eliminated jobs by people who formerly used to do those things so that every single socio-technical system adds about 20 more minutes to my day. Unlike Joe, I have less time to sit around and think and really focus on the deep work and more time managing these systems. So I agree with you that there'll be less jobs. I also am not sure that what many of us will do with the extra time that we may theoretically have is think interesting philosophical questions. If you look at what people are doing now with the extra time that we ostensibly have, and I'm going to use that word ostensibly because I don't know that many of us feel like we actually have extra time is uh, play Candy Crush on our phones um, or send text messages. I don't know that a lot of people who uh, have this um, ostensible extra time are are thinking deeply about the world. What makes you think that they might prove me wrong? I'd love to be wrong about this.
1: OK, so so your experience in the uh, in the academic world in terms of, you know, you've got more to do and uh, and um, there's more things to learn and and more technology to learn and to master to some degree. Uh, I think that's true across the world. And that's you know, that happens in the has happened in the corporate world big time. You know, in, in for example, in my field in finance and the administrative functions, there's been an, an enormous move over the last 20 plus 30 years to automate everything and to cut the number of people that's been true across the board so efficiency is driving the world and the introduction of technology has has driven efficiency and of course we've got more stuff out of it but it's made our lives hell right so that's true i think that will actually continue for for a while you know decades um, this move to efficiency and our technology will continue to be annoying okay the robots are going to be really annoying for the first 20 30 40 years that they come out uh, as opposed to killing us you know worrying about that stuff we'll be worried about how the unintended consequences of how they just don't work the way the engineers imagined for a while so efficiency will will continue to be an issue but at some point and this is the difference at some point i think that They will get to be good enough, and they really will do all of these kinds of drudgery things, including making most of the stuff that we eat and use automatically. And when that happens, then even those things will fall by the wayside for us. And so that's the big difference. Um, and the second thing I'll say is that um, I, there, there's a human urge to keep on doing more, right? Uh, we we're all competitive as a species, and you know if if you could sit back and uh, get into a Zen pose and just spend your time doing that, would you really do that? I don't, Dev. I don't think you would do that. <laughs> it's not in your nature, right? You're just competitive and so much. I, I feel so
0: seen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that's what happens in the, in this world by the way. So the so the way I imagine this this world in 140 years is to give a little bit more of uh of uh, what the books about. You know, there have been the climate wars, which I think climate change is the largest existential uh threat that humankind faces. But in this 140 years it seems that after the climate wars when uh, humankind is fighting over scarce resources. They finally come together and they figured out more or less how to solve the climate crisis, which will reach baseline in 17 centuries. From that point onward, <laughs> so so it's bad, but it's become a somewhat tractable problem. That's that's the world that is there, and and robots make robots, and so there is a lot of stuff. By the way, as a, as a finance guy, I ran the numbers forward and uh, modeled the global and U.S. economy. And it turns out that if you just take normal, quote unquote, normal growth rates from say, the last 30 years and you project them forward in the year 2161, we'll have roughly 10 to 15 to 20 times as much stuff per capita as we do now. That's if the population kind of does what it's doing in terms of the demographic trends. So it's not much bigger uh, than it is today, but that's a lot of stuff. So we'll have a lot of stuff, but we won't have any jobs. And, And so what happens in my novel is the U.S. being heavily focused on property rights, the oligarchs who are in charge of all this stuff agree to give up. The ownership of the means of production, namely the robot factories, in exchange for some laws, uh, the Levels Acts, would set some levels from one at the top to 99 at the bottom. And, you know, these are supposedly going to be meritocratic going forward. And But you have a level, and um, it's sort of explicit. So that's the world. And, and so we do have this sort of meritocracy, supposedly, and we still have 10% of the stuff in the world. Which you pay for uh, with credits, and everything else is free. That is—is that dystopian or is that utopian? Well, I, I leave it open.
0: <laughs> I did want to, uh, because you brought up again this kind of this kind of level structure that people are born into. Uh, I wanted to think through a little bit more with you the nature of free will and the nature of free will specifically versus determinism and the consequences for a philosophy of determinism in that kind of technological environment. How, in your view, does the futuristic and technologically enhanced world that your characters in Unfettered Journey live in change or challenge our understanding of free will and determinism? In other words, I'm wondering about the relationship between this universe that you sketched out with these kinds of technological enhancements in the future and with the kind of deterministic attitudes that, in a sense, flow from these technological forms of progress and the way that they bear on or change our understanding of free will or your character's understanding of free will.
1: I'll go back to the common... Belief today that we do have free will, irrespective of what all the reductionists might say. Right? I mean, I think we all feel that, right? And yet we're told by, you know, sup- supposedly the, all, all the scientists that, well, if you use a reductionist approach to the world, it's all deterministic. And uh, you know, some just ignore that and go on with their lives, and some uh, nod and think that the that the more intelligent folks who promulgate those beliefs obviously must be uh, correct, but they still go on living their lives as if they have free will. So I I think that that won't change, actually, about how we live our lives. I don't think that most folks will use a belief in determinism to change how they live much. So I, I believe the future that I'm imagining here is very much the same in terms of that as as we live now. And so humankind is not going to change that much by our technology, really, what we really are. You know, you noticed in my book, I do not have us living in the metaverse, right? Half, halfway in an online world. Yes, it is part of our life, but we really live in the real world because that is just so attractive. We had, you know, a million years of evolution to... Uh, make us very comfortable living in um, this real world that we experience. And we're going to continue to live in the same way.
0: There are two primary technologies that govern Evie and Joe's daily life. And those two technologies I want to make a case for as biotechnologies and surveillance technologies. Now, those of us outside of the realm of fiction are looking with 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 quite a bit of scrutiny at the ways that biotechnologies and surveillance technologies as two very specific technologies may actually be inflecting or changing our relationship to free will or our ability to determine our so self, uh, self-determination outside of this kind of radically circumscribed determinism. and I'll just give you a couple of examples of how I see philosophers engaging with these two technologies and the questions about free will that they bring up. On the level of surveillance technologies, many philosophers and critics of tech are making the case that our predictive technologies are so good at determining what we will do that they are able to, in a sense, forecast our behavior before we even know what our behavior is, using and then enlisting and then leveraging data collected about us to determine our behavior quite precisely. That behavior is not just prescriptive and forecasting. It actually exists in the sense of a kind of feedback loop whereby the determination of our behavior nudges us to do certain Desirable thing, oftentimes desirable, aligned with monetary outcome or economic benefit by those who are creating these technologies, that then nudge us in other desired into other desired positions, um, such that. The technologies themselves are, in a sense, um, determining our thoughts and then nudging us towards certain behaviors. On the biotechnological level, many people in the philosophy world are concerned with and are thinking about things like gene editing and the ability for genetic and biological technologies to predetermine certain characteristics, both genetically and epigenetically, to nudge us towards certain desirable outcomes. So those are things that I'm thinking about in the real world that manifest out of the the two technologies that seem to have a primary space in this novel that is very much about free will. How do you think about these two technologies, biotechnologies and surveillance technologies specifically, and our ability to possess and enact free will?
1: okay deb those are beautiful questions and beautiful areas i'm glad you focus on those two because i mentioned earlier that i was trying to highlight what i think are the real issues facing the future you know as opposed to you know terminator kind of robots so let me take those uh, in pieces let's start with surveillance first here's what i believe will happen over say the next 140 years and this is first driven by economics and then by what the government may do with regard to economics as robots make robots and we're going to have lots of stuff okay and i think that that is an inevitable kind of process think about the data that is now being collected by say amazon and google and and ebay and those companies if you think about how much amazon knows about what we want to purchase and think about how that works with basic 101 economics one-on-one economics says you have supply and you have demand and, and uh, you know, when there is more demand than there's supply, then companies would build more stuff. And then that's how capitalism works, right? In the future, with all this data, we can imagine a system where the robots make the stuff based upon the, the known demand, based on the data that they have. And that means that this system can be actually more efficient than current capitalism because it already will know based on the data, not only what we actually bought, but what we wanna buy. And so it can be used predictively to schedule the factory um, production in advance so that it's more in balance. And so I think that what that will mean um, is that we'll have all kinds of data that will actually in many ways replace the capitalist system and, and, and be more efficient, okay? You know and that's very different because in, in the modern world we think about market capitalism versus say communism, and clearly communism has done a a far worse job of giving humans the stuff that they want to have, which is kind of why uh, the people who left Cuba when Castro took over the families who went to Miami have something on the order of seven times as much stuff as the people their relatives they left behind okay so communism failed but I think that this new world with data and with this automated production can actually do a better job replacing capitalism. So I think the data is going to be there, right? About what we want. So there's that. But there's also going to be the question of who uses the data and how much does, uh, do governments use it, right? And so in, in Unfettered Journey, there is a question of, can you get around being monitored all the time? One of the characters says, uh, we have a right to be forgotten. By the way, that is a line from a legal convention in Europe that's institute of laws, and you know, I hope that that is something that we see as the norm is that one has the right to have one's data redacted because otherwise we're going down this path of having heavy surveillance. You know, we we see that in China today right um they're they're talking about social scores <laughs> if you if you jaywalk or you do some other uh things that are not allowed you get a reduction in your score and <laughs> if you have a bad enough score you can't get a a, a passport and you can't travel et, cetera, et cetera. that's that 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 can go into a very bad way uh bad direction and uh i think that is a major concern for the future so so that's surveillance. I think it's I think it's a real issue. And here in the United States and in the West, we have to think carefully about how we preserve what privacy we can. But it will be traded off against the fact that I think that the economic system will produce stuff more efficiently if some data is available in some fashion to be used by this economic machine.
0: I, I think that our form of capitalism will not only be good at predicting what we want, but good at telling us what we should want. And it seems like, in the absence of any constraints about what we can have, at least on a limited uh, financial basis, we want endless amounts of things, <laughs> uh, which is the problem. <laughs>
1: right, right. So,
0: if the aim is to get us to spend as much money as possible, then it's a little bit different from saying that the means of production can calculate precisely how many units, for example, to produce based on what we intuitively want than to say that the aim of the technology is to get us to want and to buy more things and then to produce them for us. And in that sense, it would be less likely to me to stabilize in terms of creating a set of finite market ends than to say that the market would continue to explode because the technologies would instill upon us more and more desire for the things that they can then produce.
1: But mm-hmm. but one thing you said, Deb, that uh, that I'll point out is, and and I'll say in the context, I'm I'm a capitalist, right? I believe that the capitalist system has and markets have made stuff more efficiently and made it made more stuff available per person. That that's good. But I think that if robots, when robots make robots and we have lots of stuff, then you won't be, quote unquote, paying a price for it because there'll be so much stuff. And so when we get to that economic system, it is not stable to have those robot factories owned by a small number of people. I mean, they have to be owned collectively. And if that happens, then, as I say in my book, you know, you walk into a restaurant and you sit down, you order a meal. And um, then you, when you leave, you wave to the robots and, you know, it's free. And in, 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 in the book, I have the conceit that, well, the top 10 percent of stuff you have to pay for because, you know, you want that, that uh, top grade wine. Then you have to pay for that. And the reason for that in the book is because I think we as humans will always be competitive for certain things. We can't get that out of our nature. And so, yes, we'll want to differentiate ourselves from everyone else. But then if the system is not driven by price and how much stuff, maybe it will not be so inexorably driving us to to buy all kinds of stuff we don't need and working with psychology. Hopefully, the the worst elements of that kind of surveillance uh, society will not manifest. That's my hope.
0: I want to ask a broad question about what you learned or discovered from moving from the tech industry into writing. Did writing in federal Journey or the research that you did for it or the degree that you pursued in the wake of your tech career change how you thought about the tech sector or how you saw the culture of tech production or even the way that the conversations have been framed by, or have led to conversations about the need for policy or governance or change.
1: I think the, uh, you know, once one's, when one is in the tech industry, it's, you know, hairs on fire, there's lots of things happening all the time. You're just trying to create something, you know, build companies, um, get the technologies to work properly, to, to be good technologies for people. When I got into the writing, of course, there's a whole, there's a whole element of learning the craft of writing. And I read a hundred books to teach myself the craft. So that was, that was a really fun kind of exercise to learn something brand new. But it also, to write the book, it let me spend time to actually think about how these technologies would actually play out. You know, what did I really think will happen in the future? How does it? How do they come together? And that's why I came up with a hard science view of what I think is highly realistic, looking at these many uh, threads of the technologies and how they play out. And that's how I came to the conclusion that, as I said a bit ago, that the, the most important technologies for this century are bioscience, which I was in for a half a dozen years, and AI and robotics. And my undergraduate degrees were in computer science and decision theory. So I'm deep in the code. So how does that really work? And and I think that those ones will sort of drive the century. So that's that's how the writing actually helped me to kind of frame these as the important issues to look at.
0: I want to draw out something that you said there. You, know, you said you read about 100 books to try and think about how science fiction might work and how to write, and I'm really interested in the relationship between science fiction and actual technological production. I like to say that before we can create any technology, we first have to imagine them. In fact, science fiction has been incredibly instrumental in not only developing certain ideas, many of which are drawn specifically from science fiction, but also providing a context and conditioning the public to accept or receive certain technologies when they actually come into being. So I I take from this that it matters how we imagine and how our imagination is cultivated by or prepared through the stories that we know. Help me make a pitch for technologists to read science fiction. What can science fiction or the idea of fiction itself or even the novel as a form help us to know or understand about how we build technologically and with what vision and to what ends?
1: That's a, that's, that's a tough one, Deb, because I think there's so many unintended consequences the way the technology rolls out. I mean, look at social media and the the, the questioning now how you, how 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 good or uh, evil it has been in the last uh, dozen years or so. Um, what I tried to do with Unfettered Journey is to imagine what I think are the most likely uh, technologies and how they impact us. And I think that on first on first reading they sound a little odd, but uh, but then one quickly gets to feel that this would be feel normal. So, you know, there's a couple of technologies I mentioned in my book that I think are highly likely. I've got something called the nest, uh, where which is a sort of think of your iPhone. Where will that be in 140 years? It will be sort of uh, somehow in, in, you know, incorporated into our, into our body. You know, you've got a chip behind your ear and you've got a, a, a little corneal screen that see see something and you're sort of, you can access the web without going to as far as uh, the Neuralink, that kind of technology. I, I think we'll be using voice and vision still because we as um, as human beings, have evolved over a million years to use those as our as our senses to interact with the world so so it'll be different, but it won 't be quite so different, and it will be understandable so we 'll still be humans um, so I think that's important. I also have in the bioscience there is something called the med flow, so you know I do think we 'll be monitoring our 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 bodies in real time, and I think we'll be using that to extend life and to prevent illnesses. But again, it won't be quite so invasive that we will ever feel like we're cyborgs. I, I just don't, I think those are uh, exaggerations. Uh, we will still be human. So that's how I imagine the future. And yes, we're going we're to we're continue to be challenged in the same way we are today. You know, we're challenged by social media. Our time is too busy. We, uh, we, we have too many things taking our attention. How does that get better rather than worse when we have more technology? That's a big question. You know, In the book, Joe's trying to figure out how to clear his head right? so he can actually think. <laughs> that will be, continue to be a challenge for us.
0: Gary, we're out of time, but I didn't want to leave you without asking you one important question about the novel, which is an academic novel. It is a novel that is squarely in the realm of science fiction, but importantly, it's also a love story. And I wanted to ask you about why it was so important to nest a love story within the plot and also about the philosophical dimensions of a love story that I think are at the heart of the conversation that we're having about free will, about technological production, and about the future. You foreground the nature of connection. You foreground the dimensions of love that have to deal with intentionality, not consequentiality and the dimensions of connection that are not reducible to the theories of determinism or a theory of the world that is entirely materialistic based. Can you talk a little bit about why a love story is such an important dimension of the philosophical questions that your novel raises and what it is about a love story and the nature of love itself that is entangled with these broader questions that you're asking? (laughs)
1: that's a broad subject, but as I said, we are in the future with all our technologies, we are still fundamentally human. We're animals evolved over a million years to have certain needs and wants. And a huge portion of that involves our relations with other people and whether there are intimate relations and our loves or just in general um, to feel community with the rest of humanity you know what what is our circle of care as someone said is it just us or is it just the people in our family or is it our tribe or is it beyond that and so the 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 love story is the heart of that kind of relationship but i think that as humans i I have i have a a visceral reaction against an Iranian view of the world (laughs) I think that our human advancement as a species is based upon how we stand on the shoulders of those before us in terms of technology and morals. And that community will continue to be what's important to drive our species forward in a moral way. And so we, we need to embrace that. We can't go back to a, a, a simpler world and, and think that that, that, will, that will improve things. There, there's a whole part of the book where when the characters do go back and ask, can they survive in the world without technology? And the answer to that in the book implicitly is, even if we start over, we would be following somewhat similar paths. And we would still be recreating our technology, we would be using our technology to advance us as human beings. And so, so those human relationships, that love story, is uh, central to who we are.
0: Thanks so much, Gary.
1: Thank you, Deb.